Hi, I'm Jay Thomas, and welcome to the first episode of the Bald Tires Podcast. This week, we're talking about a class of vehicle that is one of my favorites, and they go by many names. Land yachts, dinosaurs, gas guzzlers, a living room on wheels. We're talking velour, wood trim, vinyl tops, and fender skirts. The American Personal Luxury Vehicle. Right now, joining me, a great friend of mine, Tim Roden, and he's an expert in this field. He's had a huge collection of vehicles, and they've pretty much all been American personal luxury vehicles. We're talking Cadillacs, Buicks, Lincolns, Mercury's, Chryslers, and we're going to go over Tim's top five of all the cars he's owned. I'm Jay Thomas, and this is the Bald Tires Podcast, because when you make great memories, you make bald tires. So I'm joined by Tim Roden. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, I've gotten to know Tim because we're interested in the same stuff. We, we like the same cars. We met a few years ago. I, I had just gotten my 1969 Buick Electra, and I think I showed up. Where do we meet, Tim? You remember the first time? It uh, seems to me we met at Pike Lake, and I had a triple black Lincoln Continental, and you had that Buick that you had bought from Brad Smith. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and you were there when that vehicle got bought at auction, right? I was. I was standing right beside Brad when he, Brad, when he bought that car. And then Brad had it, and I found it online. In fact, I found a Lincoln online that I was kind of looking at, and we were just talking about this before, but it was a 71. What was it, Mark? What was that year? It was a Mark III. It was Mark a 1971 III. Mark III. It was burgundy, really beautiful, but it had been uh, like restored, what I'd call restored. Right. You know, repainted, but somebody had taken it apart pretty far. There was a whole photo album of that car and uh, they had documented the restoration and it was a frame off. They took absolutely everything yes. apart, including all the wiring. That's what freaked me out because when I was, I was kind of looking at it and it was like, it, it met all of my requirements. So just, just a precursor to this, you know, we're talking about what are the things I wanted in a car and it's the same things you want in a car. And mm-hmm. I've always had this dream list and I wish I could find a car that had, all, had it all, but I wanted fender skirts. I wanted like a continental kit. I wanted a vinyl roof. I wanted hideaway headlights, cornering lamps. I wanted the little uh, signal light indicators that mount on the top of the fenders. And that that had it all. Yep. It, it did. Except I started looking in the trunk and the wiring was not great because it had been put back together with butt connectors. And I've had a, plenty of a wiring experiences where those things, like the connection goes bad and that's it. Like doesn't work anymore. Something doesn't work. And then you end up chasing a wire for oh, a man. week. And Totally. Yeah. Totally. So anyways, I've known Tim. That's a long story, but I've known Tim for now four or five years, right? That's, yeah. That's a while four ago. four or five years. Yeah. And in, in the meantime, I've had my 1969 Buick Electra, the one I got from Brad Smith. And Tim's had a dozen cars. Well, I probably, <laughs> I might have had six, five or six cars in the last five or six years, but uh, a dozen, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We might be able to count. I, I love, I love uh, talking with Tim because every time I, I see him, you know, a couple months apart, it's, the winter goes by and we, and we don't get to talk to each other because the car show season's off or something like that. And then he's got something new or he fires me a text and he's in Alberta picking something up and you have this ability Tim, to find cars that are just perfect. And I, I can't figure out how you do it because you always find something that just has an amazing story or it's like, it's in immaculate shape. How do you do that? Well, typically I fall backwards into deals like that. Uh, I don't usually go out searching for a car because uh, as Murphy's Law would dictate, when you're out <laughs> looking for something, you're never going to find what you're looking for. Yeah. You were just talking about that. And, uh, but when you're not looking for something, 
that's when they show up. So that's why I typically own three or four cars at a time because I'll find something that I, it's not like I can't, you know, not so, have it. I just don't want anyone else to have it. So, so that's they, why I buy them. They find you. They do. They find me. See, I've been sought out by many, many cars. I, I believe in this. I believe, uh, call me crazy, but maybe it's, I don't know what it is, the, the universe. Let's just call it the universe, you know. Right. Uh, certain things are meant to happen certain ways. And sometimes those objects find you for a reason. And I, I, I feel the same way. There's things that have come to me that I haven't really gone out looking for. And all of a sudden, poof, that's exactly what I need, you know. Yeah. But, but you have a, like a way, like I say, of, of or these things have a way of finding you. And there are these immaculate one owner vehicles, low kilometers, you know, options to the hilt with a great story and all that sort of stuff. Oh, for sure. And once you've bought a few of them, you kind of get to be known, you know, amongst the car circles. We're both involved in a few car clubs and every so often a deal will come up. It just came up for me again in January. Look look what I found, you know, another member of one of our car clubs uh, as a contractor was working at a condo in downtown Saskatoon and stumbled upon a Cadillac sitting in the underground parking with two inches of dust sitting on top of it. Four flat tires have been sitting there for 10 years. One owner car spent most of its winters in Arizona in just beautiful shape, but you couldn't really tell underneath all of the dirt and the dust that was on top of it. So he did most of the work. He got air in the tires. He got it running. He cleaned it all up. And then I took it from there. He, he called me. We went over and it was a good excuse to have a visit. So we had a nice visit in his garage. I looked at this car and, you know, basically in my mind decided to buy it right there on the spot without even hearing it run. And I did. So so this was this was the Cadillac you just recently had. I just recently had this what, Cadillac. What was it? It was a this 90... It was a 1992 Cadillac Fleetwood Coupe, a two-door. So this car had most of the parameters you were looking for. It had the turn signal indicators on the fender. It had fender skirts. It had a vinyl top. Yep. It did not have hideaway headlights, but it was a fairly modern car in that it had fuel injection. Yep, that's right. It was right. front wheel drive uh, and uber plush. Very, very plush. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it was, and, and then once you got all the dirt out of it, it was like in really good shape too. Oh, wasn't it, it was in wonderful, wonderful shape. That car was only had 153,000 kilometers on it. So for a 1992 car that spent a lot of time traveling between Saskatoon and Phoenix, it 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 was in really nice shape. Those are nice roads on on the way to that destination. Yes, right. Like we're not yeah. talking gravel that it's been going down. Right. No gravel. The car was clean, clean, clean underneath. It was cleaner underneath than it was on the top. <laughs> so so did this owner just they had stopped driving and they were ready to sell it already. You know, I don't really recall the story and neither did the fellow I bought the car from either. He he tried to get the story, but it was a such a typical st- uh, story of a, an old car. It was owned by old people who owned it for a very, very long time until one of them got sick yep. and then it turned into an estate deal. So the car ended up languishing for a long, long time while an estate was settled and then it was finally able to be purchased by someone. Time to go. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, for Makes sure. Sense. Okay, so how many cars do you think you've owned since like since you were 16 well i did do you, do you have like a number when the pandemic started there was a little thing on facebook that was a bit of a challenge you know who if, if you could uh name all of the cars that you've owned and i <laughs> i had a bit of a list and of course i have a photo album yeah and i was over 40 so it was Whoa. about 45 cars i think i've owned since i started driving and uh yeah so that's 40 45 that's 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 amazing um Okay, let's let's talk about the first one. What was your first car? My first car was a 1977 Mercury Marquis. 
I had been shopping for a car. My, me and my dad have the same interest. My dad loves old cars also. Yeah. So we were out shopping over my first car. Now, when I was shopping for my first car, I was 18. It was 1985. So a 1977 Mercury was not a, an old car, but it was an old car. It was a neighbor's car, and he was an employee of Sastel. So back in the day, they had company cars. The yep. managers did. And he bought the car from the company and had it repainted because the top of the car was white and the sides of the, or sorry, the top of the car was blue. Yeah. The sides of the car were white and there was a great big reflective yellow stripe along this whole side of the car <laughs> and Sastel in letters on the door. And I remember the car when it was his company car. And then when he bought it, he had it painted poorly because you could make out the outline of Sastel through the paint <laughs> and the outline of the side mark. And I figured I could fix that with some turtle wax, and I never did. I just made it shiny and more noticeable. <laughs> but that was my first car, Jay. And that was I, your first car. That yeah. was my first car, yeah. So what did you take your license in? I took my license in a 1980 Oldsmobile Custom Cruiser station wagon. That's yeah. awesome. It was my dad's company car. Yeah. 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 And the funny thing is, you kind of have, in a sort of way, both of these cars again right now, or very close to it. I do. I current well i got my driver's license in 1983 i'm a huge fan of oldsmobiles and i think that goes back to me actually accomplishing getting my driver's license and it was in this 1980 old station wagon my dad previously had a 77 olds delta 88 and uh, just the dash layout and everything just takes me back to those good old times of you know when i got my license and i was 16 17 18 19 years yep. old you know, so I've really had a pension for that. And I currently own, I think, one of the better 1983, my, the year I got my license. And yeah. it's a Delta 88 Oldsmobile. And I absolutely love it. You know, the funny thing is that, again, there's these funny similarities that, that, that Tim and I have figured out. Is that, you know, for example, we're both like sort of the same taste in cars. Uh, you have a fascination with the Titanic, the ship. Yes. I did too as a kid, and, and I'm still always interested in new research and things like that, you know? So, at, and that Oldsmobile you talked about, that is the Olds, an 84 Olds, because it was 85 they changed the body, right? 84 was still... 85, they changed 86. Uh, they went to front-wheel drive in 1986. Right, so Delta 88. my grandparents had an 84 Olds Delta 88. Mm -hmm. That's when they had the amber turn signals. That's right. Right? On the yeah. back. But that's the car that I grew up in riding around in. So you were you were taking your license in it, but I was also a kid in, in almost the same car. And I can remember uh, my grandmother. They lived in Cudworth, Saskatchewan, my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I remember her coming to the city and picking me up for the weekend, or maybe me and my sister, but I was really young. And young enough that, you know, back then, you could let kids sit in the front seat. Right. And I'd be in the front seat and my grandmother would be driving the car. And at that point, she was really only in her late 50s, early 60s. So, yeah. you know, she wasn't an old lady yet at all. But uh, I specifically remember sitting in those big, plush, overstuffed velour seats, <laughs> blue velour seats. And that dashboard, if anybody knows this car... It, it sort of slants up at you, kind of from the bottom, right? Yes, it does, yeah. And the, the, everything is sort of laid out in a sort of vertical style in, in a lot of ways. The the vents, they're kind of vertical and long. And uh, same thing with the glove box. It sort of comes up at you at a, at a strange angle. And on your, you know, the door. And I can remember this all from my head. I mean, I haven't been one of these cars in years. But, you know, there's... 
sort of a square armrest and and a kind of a uh, a handle that you use to pull the door shut. Yep. Right? Kind of like a coach handle almost. Yeah, nice little leather strap. Yeah. Exactly. But I remember sitting in that car, riding with her, you know, many weekends in a row and just falling in love with it. And I think that's probably one of the cars that are one of the reasons why I like the cars that I like today. Right. And I remember the ride. You know, I can remember, it's, it's so funny how those things when you're an early kid or even a teenager, they stick with you. The right. sounds and the feelings, you know, like I bet you, you and I can't remember what we were even doing last week, but I can remember exactly the sound of the turn signal in that Oldsmobile. Right. You know, yeah. when the turn signal flasher would be on or, you know, what, what it sounded like and how it felt. Yeah, exactly. And they, I think they, those things drive you and they, they stick with you and they kind of form who you sort of become, you know? Well, they kind of do. You're, you're absolutely right. That Oldsmobile, I mean, I'm a member, I'm on a Facebook, within Facebook group, an Oldsmobile appreciation group. Um, of the 40 cars I've owned, I think seven or eight of them have been Oldsmobiles and they've all been that B-body class. You know, 77, I've had a 78 Olds Regency. I had an 84 Olds Regency Coupe. I had a 79 Delta 88. I had another 79 Delta 8 and I've had two 83 Delta 80. <laughs> and I had a 1992 Cutlass briefly. That's that's awesome. Tell me yeah. a bit, tell me a bit more. We're gonna put, by the way, pictures up of of some of Tim's cars. I'm gonna bug him for some pictures, and we'll we'll get them sure. up on my Facebook page, and you'll find them at jthomasauto.ca as well, uh, along with this podcast. But the the '83 you've got right now, that's got a cool story too. Yeah, that car was uh, I bought it from the son of the original owner. Uh, they purchased the car brand new, uh, in 1983. And then the, you know, they used the car, but very, very sparingly. And the car was always kept inside and his dad waxed it, cleaned it. The kids weren't allowed to eat in the car. Yep. And, uh, but they did use it. They used it for traveling and he drove it every year. Unfortunately, his father had gotten sick and it eventually passed away. And then I had the car in my driveway shortly after I purchased it and his mother had recently moved into another condo just across the street from me. Oh, no way. And in passing, she walked by and said, I think that's my car. Did you buy this car from so-and-so? And And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I did. She said, that's my car. (laughs) So she filled me in on the whole story of that car. They had actually bought a car in 1983 at SMP. There was a terrible storm, a thunderstorm in the summer that had wiped out every car with hail. Yeah. So they went in and saw their brand new car and it was covered in hail dents and her husband didn't want it. He said he didn't want anything that was going to be repainted. So the salesman talked them into, you know, leaving their deposit because they had more of them coming in and they ended up buying this car. So this car was fresh off of the truck. No one had test driven it except for the mechanic doing the PDI. And then they took delivery of it the very next day. So this was not a car that sat on a lot or in a showroom or anything. This was a fresh delivery right from the factory, right into their garage where it stayed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so. that's cool. And then they, like, did they even winter drive it? I don't think so. This car has got absolutely no rust on it under the doors or anywhere else. And uh, it, the car just, I bought it because it was an 83 Delta 88 and, and uh, I just had to have it. Yeah. Um, but I only really started to look the car thoroughly over after I had purchased it, just like all of us do. Yeah. You know, you'd buy it. I took it for a test drive and kind of looked around it and that needed stuff. The power antenna didn't work and the white wall tires were dirty and stuff, but the car was really clean and his son had really looked after it since his father had passed away also. Right. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I thought, well, I could really work with this and the price was right. So I bought it. But as I went over the car, it was, it just got better and better and better. 
there isn't one piece on that car that's ever been repainted. It's completely original. Completely original. And not a ding or dent or mark on it. Uh, the vinyl top is in, you know, perfect shape. The interior's in perfect shape. Never been smoked in. He put a really nice aftermarket CB radio into it. It's still in there. <laughs> a realistic from probably Radio Shack back yep. in the day. And it's got a big whip antenna in the trunk. So it, it, what's amazing about that? And I'm not sure. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you work you work for, for a dealership in town here, mm-hmm. a, a Chevy dealership. Do you think there are still people around who do that? Who buy a car and they simply drive it a little bit? And keep it in the garage. I mean, I mean, a new car now today, a 2021, whatever. Have you? Do you think there's anybody left who does that? You know what? Yes, there is. Yeah. And uh, because I know them, because they're very picky with their cars, and I'm the guy they see because I run the detail shop. Okay. So they uh, will come and see me uh, for just for periodic things. You know, they like to get their car waxed once a year, and they'll typically keep a car for about ten years. Uh, but I have seen the odd car that has come in on trade. And this is typically a car that you'll never see after it leaves the dealership because they'll look after it themselves. And they'll come in in beautiful shape. Two years ago, we had a 1990, I think, four or five Monte Carlo traded in. Oh, It was white and low kilometers. They bought it brand new there at the dealership. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful one-owner car. We sold it uh, right away. It didn't go on a lot. I mean, someone there were people waiting in the wings to buy that car. Right now, I'm with Tim Roden. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he works at one of the dealerships in Saskatoon and uh, runs the detail shop, among other things that you do there. Yep. You've had like 40 plus cars. Do you think you've got a top five? I certainly have a top five that I wished I hadn't sold. Okay. And one that I still have that I've owned for 25 years, going on 30. Yeah. And uh, it's sitting in my driveway. And... Uh, that's likely my favorite car. I don't, uh, I've had many opportunities to sell it over the years and I just can't bring myself so it, to do it. Okay. Then that's, that's confirmation. So because, because there are cars that I've seen you get that you've loved and that are amazing and you've sold them, but I, you've never sold that one. I've never sold that one. That's the one I keep. Okay. So yep. it is a. That's a 1996 Chevrolet Impala SS. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was reading a Car and Driver magazine article, and it was talking about vehicles actually appreciating in value. Mm. And do you know that that was one of the ones that was on the list for up-and-comers, ones that are now worth more than they were even worth brand new. Oh, wow. And the Impala, 96 Impala SS was on that list. Yeah. So... You're not the only one who thinks it's a cool car, you know? <laughs> well, that's that's great. I I loved them when they first came out. The original advertising for those cars was just a simple profile of the car in picture. And then just in print underneath, it said, Lord Vader, your car is ready. <laughs> and that absolutely sold me. It's like, I've got to even just see one of these things. Yeah. And, you know, my dad in the 1990s, my dad was a senior executive who bought a lot of cars for, for his job. And... You know, uh, one one of the things that he got with his job was a company car. And he ordered that car shortly before he retired. I can remember him asking me, you know, I'm going to order my one of my last company cars. I said, if you're able to order an Impala SS, order it. And uh, <laughs> I will start saving right now and I'll just buy it from you when it's time for you to turn it in. I'll just buy it. So he said, okay. So we made a deal 
and he bought that car as a company car. He was able to get one because they were they were extremely hard to get. Yeah, you know when they were new. But he, because of his job, I think he was able to swing a deal, and he got one and ordered a brand new. I can remember the car being delivered. I went with him to the dealership that delivered it to him, and uh, we went into their service drive-through. It was in December. It was in the winter of all pla- of all oh, times. Okay, winter time. It was just before Christmas of uh, 95 and he picked up this 96 impala ss and it was brand new all clean they had it all cleaned up it was just gorgeous so and he drove it out of there and i can remember him starting it for the first time and i was standing behind it and they had kind of a detuned exhaust or whatever but uh, you could tell it was something special so for for those who don't necessarily know Give us a rundown on what makes up an Impala SS. Like, what is it actually made out of? Well, an Impala SS is a Caprice classic. So it's a police car or a taxi cab is what most people know them as. But back in the day, Caprice classics were still sold. They still sold station wagons. That's right. Um, It had uh, an LT1 V8 uh, 5.7 liter engine. So a good old 350 engine in it and it's a body on frame 1996 was the last year the gm made body on frame cars right uh the buick roadmaster the cadillac fleetwood the caprice classic and the impala ss all shared the exact same platform and the same powertrain the 260 horsepower lt1 v8 engine and uh, but this one was ordered all black at, at bucket seats it's the only year it had a console shift yeah so uh yeah and you know what my my dad used it as a company car for one year and then I bought it and I moved the car back to Calgary where I, I was currently living. And I kept the car with me in Calgary until I moved back to Saskatoon. And I just, I just can never bring myself to sell it. I just kept it and I maintained it and I drive it every year. It's got probably 200 and some thousand kilometers on it. That now. many? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because you'll see pictures if you go to jthomasauto.ca of this thing. It is practically flawless. It really is. For its year, it is practically flawless. Don't I can't forget believe... I run a detail show. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, you do. Of course you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you can make anything look perfect, but I would never have guessed it was that many kilometers it, at all. It is. The uh, odometer is the old LCD style with the... It, it blinked out. And I don't really know the true mileage on the car because that's one of the only things that doesn't work is the odometer oh too bad it's a digital odometer on an analog gauge and for some strange reason they just made them like that it uh the the numbers went out a number of years ago and i did have it fixed with the authentic mileage on it was i think was about one hundred and fifty thousand kilometers if i remember but it only lasted a year and it was quite expensive to send it off and get it fixed so I figure it's probably around two hundred thousand by now that's on it so that's amazing yeah and it's been an excellent car you know, I, I've never had to recharge the air conditioning in yeah. it. It's a 96. I've only put a few batteries in it. Mind you, I store it in the winter and, and take the battery out and everything else. And it's, it's doted on. Um, but in the summer when I'm driving it, I take it to the lake. I'll make a dozen trips back yep. and forth to Greenwater. Highway trips on Saskatchewan highways with it. It's, it just goes. It just goes. It's, it's just a great car. The power locks work. Everything, everything works except the odometer. <laughs> so that's probably, we could almost call that car number one. Like that's almost the flagship of your your collection, the one you you're not selling. That's the top dog in my fleet. In your fleet, okay. Yep. So if we had to go, if we were to go to the next one, if we were doing the top five, the, what the, would be your next favorite car that you've had? The next one that I had that I really loved was an Oldsmobile. Okay. I love my Oldsmobiles, and uh, this was a 1984 Regency two door, mm. and it was bought new in Regina, and it was the typical story of the family who owned it for 30 years. 
somebody died and the car was purchased from an estate by a friend of mine. Okay. And he kept the car for about 10 years, but he, he uh, had kept it on a farm outside. And uh, so the car needed a little bit of work on the paint to bring the paint back and everything else. But the interior in the car was absolutely perfect. And it really ran nice, 307 V8. Um, it was the last year they made that car on a rear-wheel drive platform. Right. And uh, triple burgundy. Just had to have it. Burgundy, Olds, 98, just like Fargo, you know. <laughs> so I I bought that car. And when I sold it, I sold it to a friend of mine. But I, I lamented selling that car because it was just so pure and original and clean. It really, really yeah. was nice. It was yeah. never on a gravel road. You could pull up the mats underneath the trunk and look inside the fender. It wasn't even any dust back there. It looked like it was just built. That's really cool. Yeah, okay. beautiful car. That's number two. What's number three? Number three, well, we'll go down the list here. And that was a triple black 1978 Lincoln Town Coupe. That was a very special car for me because one of my, my favorite customers in the whole world uh, he bought that car brand new and that had a really big backstory. He ordered the car new and he wanted a triple black car because his dad always bought black cars. The salesman he bought the car from tried to talk him out of it, wanted him to buy a car that they already had in stock. They didn't want to have to order one. Of course. Triple black, oh, you're going to look like a gangster. We'll never be able to resell it, blah, blah, blah. So he said, well, that's what I want. You're either going to sell it to me or I'll just buy one somewhere else. So they ended up ordering this car for him. Black <laughs> vinyl top on a black car with black leather interior. In 1978, when the popular colors were yellows and browns with white vinyl tops and stuff, he had this triple black one. He owned that car for 30 years simply to spite the salesman who sold it to him. <laughs> And he bought a new truck from us every five years. So I got to know him really well. And he was so meticulous and fussy. If you think I'm fussy and you're fussy with yeah. cars, this guy was really fussy. Every five years gets a black truck. And I went over that truck with a fine tooth comb, making sure there wasn't a mark or a, anything on it. Yep. And out of a regular conversation about 10 years ago, he told me he had this Lincoln Town Coupe. And the reason being was that I was at the time driving a 78 Lincoln Town car. He said, whose Lincoln is that? I said, it's mine. Hmm. I've got one of those in my garage. And I couldn't believe it. And then I really couldn't believe when he said it was black. And one thing led to another. And about five or six years after that conversation, mm -hmm. I ended up with the car. And uh, I absolutely loved it because I knew how fussy he was with that car. And uh, that's one of the ones also, I should have never sold that car because I'll never have another one. Well, and that's the one you had when I met you. So I know yes. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It had monogrammed door plates. Yes. Right? It did. It had, it had initials because you, was that something you ordered from the factory? It, uh, or was I, it like a dealership installed accessory or I'm something? I'm not sure if the dealer installed those or if the factory installed those. Uh, but I mean, it was definitely a vanity thing. It was very popular in the 70s, especially on luxury cars to get your initials. I've seen uh, cars in the past too with an actual plaque that has your name engraved in it. And I mean, those would come from the factory. Right. I mean, this one though, it wasn't just a sticker or, you know, that's like your name stuck on there. It was a like a, a, a stainless steel plate or chromed plate oh, yeah. with number or with letters set into it. It was a plaque and that thing was riveted to the door. Yeah. It wasn't glued on that. It was riveted onto the door with his initials in it. Now that Lincoln also featured opera windows, right? Mm -hmm. Those oval shaped opera windows that were kind of in the back. Yeah. But there was a, another addition though, right? You've shown me collector windows you've got in storage that belonged to that car, right? Yeah, so in, in 78, you could also buy a Mark V, and that was the more expensive of the two cars. And uh, 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because the the fellow who owned the car, ordered the car new, he wanted a Mark V. That's what he was shopping for was a Mark V. He wanted a triple black Mark V. But in the 70s, him and his wife were quite avid skiers. And they used to make trips out to Fernie every year to go skiing. Okay. And he brought his skis in from his, you know, he lived down in Cabri and brought his skis in just to make sure that everything would fit and everything and, and uh, uh, came to the Ford stores. And lo and behold, the skis and equipment would not fit in the trunk of a Mark V. If you've ever seen a Mark V, it's kind of like a Cadillac Eldorado. They're like a buffalo. Everything is up front with a very short, stubby <laughs> trunk. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So he, the, nothing would fit in the trunk of this car. So the salesman had, you know, coaxed him and said, well, we've, you can get a town, a full-size car, and you can still get them in a two-door because he wanted a two-door. And that's why he ordered the town coupe instead of a Mark V. Which one, was, which one would have been in higher in the hierarchy of Lincoln's models at the time? A Mark V. A Mark V. Yes. But the town coupe was actually a bigger full-size car. It was a bigger full-size car, but it cost less money. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's similar to like, you know, what, for example, I know of the history of my car, 69 Buick Electra 225 was the biggest car, but it wasn't the most expensive. Right. The one, the most expensive was the Riviera. Right. That was, even though it was, wasn't quite as big and it was mechanically vastly different in many ways than the Electra. Right. But yep. yeah. A but a significantly bit, a smaller car. Significantly smaller car. Different styling and uh, more geared toward the personal luxury market. Yes. Which was huge in the 70s. That's 60s that's what ruled 70s. the world, right? Yep. I mean, that was, that was, you know, I've read some articles. This is sort of a tangent, but I read some articles about how when we went from muscle cars, and that was the trend in the 60s and into the 70s, but when the fuel crisis hit in the early 70s, was it 73? 73, the oil right? embargo. Oil the embargo. First yeah. That, you know there had to be this swing and it was almost a deliberate swing into personal luxury because they had to sort of push buyers attention away from big horsepower numbers to something else that, that appeased them because they, all of a sudden they had to make up, you know, these, these EPA rule regulations and they had to well, meet fuel economy numbers and it, it bogged, you know, engines right down. All of a sudden a, a 500 horsepower engine was only making 230 horsepower after, you know, emission standards, emissions, you know, the catalytic converter came into effect and all the other things. So it was actually almost like a deliberate push into sort of a different direction. Absolutely. It absolutely was. You know, the governments in the early 1970s, you got to remember there was uh, insurance companies were starting to complain about high horsepower. Insurance rates, of course, were going up and up and up on high horsepower cars. And then there was something called the corporate average uh, fuel economy standard set by the U.S. government. They referred to it as CAFE. Yes. And auto manufacturers were now forced to make cars very fuel, more fuel efficient and better for the environment. So they started these big V8 engines in the 1970s were getting choked up and detuned with all these emission controls. Right. Uh, having to be made to run on unleaded fuel, the uh, advent of catalytic converters and all this stuff happened in around the same time that the personal luxury cars got so popular. And of course, that's that's one of the reasons why they had to, you know, uh, get that crowd that was buying the two-door sports cars into something different. Yeah, it's almost a distraction. Almost a distraction. Right. You know, yeah, because if you keep selling sports cars, but they're not really sports cars anymore. Right. What have you got? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nothing. You just have a regular two-door 
car. Yeah, you know? that, that doesn't do anything. So you yeah. have to make it somewhat appealing. So, but of course, then, in the 1970s, the, you had the padded vinyl tops. And wood grain. Wood grain everywhere. Pinstripes everywhere. <laughs> wide white wall tires. What was, uh, oh, yeah. Waffle the co- weave. <laughs> the Cordoba. Corinthian leather. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Herb Tarlick from uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. The, the, the Corinthian leather. And go figure. People are collecting. Chrysler Cordobas are now getting collectible. And some <laughs> of the nicer examples are starting to get quite expensive they are yeah 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 that's another that's on my bucket list i would love to own a beautiful chrysler cordoba yeah yeah so i guess coming back to where we were sort of left off from though is is you know that big lincoln Mm -hmm. he bought it because his skis fit into it yes right yeah uh this this previous owner this this one owner and and he ended up with just keeping it for forever. And again, keeping it so perfectly. It was such an immaculate car. He did. It, that car was absolutely gorgeous. When I when I bought it, I, I went and looked at it and it was another one. I just had to have it. Just like this Blue Olds, I just had to have that one. Okay, so I think yeah. that's number three. That's what's, number three. What's number four? Number four is going to surprise a lot of people. It's going to really disappoint my dad <laughs> because he hated it. Um but it was a 1973 Chrysler New Yorker Brougham. Oh. A lot of people considered it a big, ugly tank, but I absolutely loved it. That car had the best ride. It was the most reliable car. At the time, when I bought that car, it was a lot of, that was 20 years ago when I bought that car. It was already all rusted out. It had virtually everything that you were looking for in a car. It had a vinyl top. It had fender skirts, which had since rusted so badly that you couldn't attach them to the car anymore. (laughs) It was very, very rusty. Um, I bought the car from a ballet instructor in Saskatoon for $800. Okay. It was gold. It had this white vinyl top. The price was right, and it already had studded rear, you know, tires on it. So I bought it. And I thought, well, I'll just drive it until something goes wrong with it. Because I thought, what the heck, for $800, why not? And it was heavy. It blew good heat when I test drove it. Everything seemed to work when I test drove it. And I kept waiting and waiting for something to go wrong with that car. And it never did. Everything worked in that car. It was a beautiful (laughs) car. It was a four-door hardtop. In fact, I was so confident with that car that I started making trips with it back and forth to the lake in the dead of winter. Really? And it ran just fine. It never let me down once. So so when you say rusty, I mean, there's people, I'm assuming you're not meaning like holes through the floor rusty, not like that. I just mean some surface rust, some edge rust, things like that. Well, it had some surface rust, but the rust in the rear, in the rear back, you know, those were unit body cars, so very difficult to repair, I think. Um, But, you know, if you were driving on wet freeways and highways you wanted to put your suitcase in the back seat because it was going to get wet in the trunk okay so it was that bad yeah it was that bad i'm surprised i've never seen you own a car that was that even had a blemish on it so i'm surprised you even went for something like that you know what i was and you know i was i lived at home then briefly for a while and i drove this thing into the driveway and my dad just you know he put his his hands in his face and he just shook his head (laughs) what what are you doing what what are you doing i you know, I said, well, look at it. it was only eight hundred dollars. It's it was just it's just a great car and it seems to run fine. It had a four forty. And uh, you know, I made a few road trips with that car, Jay, and uh, you know, you could sit there and just cruise with it eighty miles an hour and it just tracked absolutely smooth. You could let it go with a steering wheel and it would just drive itself. I knew a guy in high school who had one of these things. Uh I I think it was a similar year. Um and he, he basically worked in high school just to put gas in the thing. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, I suppose when you're talking, gas was probably a little bit more, you know, cheaper. But yeah, pff, man, when I was in high school, I mean, pff, I mean, that, that's already just about 20 years ago, too, for me. Yeah. But he just worked to put gas in it because it, it was a complete hog. Yeah. You know? This, well, this was a hog on gas, too. Like, yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. It was still a big gas guzzler, but comfortable. The car also was missing. It didn't have tilt. Like mm. a lot of people are so used to having that tilt steering column. This car didn't have tilt, but it had everything else, power windows, seats, door locks, air, all of the other amenities. It, had, it was a hard top. So when you put all four windows down, yep. there was no pillar in the middle. So it was very, very unique in that way. The air conditioning worked perfectly. And the seats were so comfortable that even on long road trips, I can remember this to this day, my legs or back or nothing ever got sore driving that car. And it floated, it sopped up the bumps. It was a, just a really nice smooth ride. And I tell you, if I could find a really, really nice shape 72 or 3 New Yorker again with no rust. You'd do I, it. I would do it. So what happened to that car? I sold it to a fellow uh, who was a, he, he was a photographer. And he used to drive around to schools and take pictures, class pictures okay. at schools. That was his job. And he wanted a car big enough for all of his equipment in the trunk. And I told him when he bought that car, I said, if you ever want to sell that car, phone me first. And he did about five years later, and I bought it back. I owned that car twice. <laughs> you've, but hey, that's not the first car you've owned more than once, though. Uh, no, there's, uh, I've owned that car twice, and I owned another Chrysler New Yorker. I owned that same car three times. Is that the one you had most recently? Most recently, yeah. That was a newer car. It was a 93, so it was kind of a K-car version right. of a New Yorker. Right, yeah, the yeah. smaller front-wheel drive thing. But you had that three times. Again, that there was nothing wrong with it. It came in at <laughs> high mileage on it. It came in on trade at the dealership. And I was looking for a winter beater, and I just checked it out real quick, and I opened the door, and I just about dropped dead from the smell. And that was the reason that the customer traded the car. They couldn't stand the smell in it anymore. And it was an older couple, I believe they're from Nippowin. And uh, I don't know, the scallop potato spilt over in the trunk one Easter <laughs> and they could never clean it out. They, could, they took it to all these cleanup shops and they tried shampooing it out themselves, but they never took the carpet out of the trunk. Oh. Oh yeah. So I bought the car. It was really cheap. And when I bought that car, I first thing I did, I had to find the source of the smell. Because working in the detail industry, you know there's going to be a source somewhere, a mouse nest or something. Yeah. This had a really bad, rotten milk type. Ugh, it was just awful. <laughs> and that velour, all, it had enough velour in that car to please a sheik. And it was just permeated the whole thing. So I shampooed that entire car. And I pulled out the trunk carpet, and there it was. And it was a lump of black something or other. That, oh, my God. So I treated that car with chlorine, ozone, any poisonous gas I could get my hands on, I threw in the <laughs> trunk of that thing. And, but I cleaned it all out. And you know what? I drove that car for two years. It was my winter car for two years. I sold it to my girlfriend's mother at the time, and she drove the car for five years, and I bought it back from her, and I kept it for another year. And then I sold it to one of my employees who kept it, he cleaned it all up, and then he had plans to ship it to the Philippines. Wow. So uh, one thing happened after another. The car never get did get shipped, and I ended up buying it back from him just this past winter. That's crazy. Yeah. And who's so, it go and it's gone again, though. Well, I bought it for another, you know, another fellow that I work with, and he was looking for an older, cheaper car for his mother-in-law. 
<laughs> and she loves it. And that's another Chrysler New Yorker. I never had a problem with that car. Everything worked and the car ran and drove just beautifully. That's really cool. Okay. How are we at number five, do you think? I think number four was the, yeah, the, the first Chrysler New Yorker that you talked about, right? Yep. What's number five, or the uh, uh, top five, or the, or the fifth car that got away? Well, the fifth car that got away, you know, I really had to think about this one. Uh, I, think I, I think I know the answer. I've got a bunch of ties. Well, you might be surprised by the answer. Um, number five might be, it, it's either going to be the current car that I own, this 83 Delta 88, because I got my driver's license in 1983 in an Oldsmobile. Right, That's one right. of the reasons why I bought this car. But the other reason is that my very first car was a Mercury Marquis, and my current car that's sitting in the garage is a 78 Mercury Marquis. So it's the same car as the very first car that I owned. Now, this is the one that you, you told us about that was painted, the, the Sastel car, Yes, right? the Sastel car that was painted. It was a base car. So I And I pined for like the fully loaded Grand Marquis. You know, but that was way out of my price range. I couldn't afford anything like that at the time. So this was a base Mercury Marquis. It had a 400 uh, engine in it. It had a bench seat. It had air conditioning and aftermarket cruise control. <laughs> it didn't have any other options. It had the manual lever to slide that huge bench seat forward and backward. <laughs> yeah. AM only radio. Uh, the aftermarket cruise control didn't work, and it was strapped on with zip ties onto the turn signal. Oh, lever. great, yeah. Uh, no tilt. So you basically sat there and drove it like you, a bus driver would drive a bus. <laughs> and it was this hideous blue with, uh, well, I shouldn't say hideous. I actually liked the color of it. And it had a white vinyl top and nice hubcaps. I mean, it really cleaned up like a nice car. But the one that's in the garage right now, that's is a, spectacular. That is an extra lettuce and tomato version of the exact same car. <laughs> it's the same car. It looks exactly the same as my very first car, except it's a two-door. It's a grand marquee. Yep. It's absolutely loaded with every option you can think of. The, you know, leather seats. It it really is nice. And There's pictures of this at jthomasauto.ca on Facebook as well. Go check it out. It is it's the green machine. It really is. It's what what you what you'd call triple green, really. Right? It is. It's triple it's a green. Gr a green vinyl roof, a beautiful um, emerald green exterior, mm -hmm. and sort of two tone green leather seats. Right. Green carpet. The green. Oh, the whole thing's green inside. Really. Right. I mean. Except for all the wood applications, yeah, which really yes. gives it a rainforest kind of atmosphere <laughs> sitting in there. You're almost looking for the mosquitoes to swat. Okay, but seriously, that car, I mean, I, I, I just stuck my head on it before we started this. It doesn't, it smells like leather. Mm. Old cars usually kind of have a smell. That car doesn't smell. It is perfect. It really is. It's a nice car. It's a nice, there's only 74,000 kilometers on it. And I bought that from another friend of mine up in Prince Albert. And the car was sold brand new at Arcade Motors in PA, which is now called Lakeland Ford. Yep. And uh, yeah, it was a one owner for 20 years. And then another person bought it and he owned it for another 10 or 15 years. And then this fella bought it. And it was always just treated with respect and, you know, taken out on sunny days and driven to church and, you know... Uh, basically driven to car shows and driven to the golf course and taken to the lake a few times a year. Which is amazing. So you're the fourth owner yes. of that car. Yeah. And that car has been lucky enough its entire life 
to find those kind of people to look after it. Because you know, for every story that we're talking about like this, there's also a sad ending for several cars where they were one-owner cars. They were beautifully kept, looked after. They made it into an estate sale. They were picked up and they went either to the demolition derby straight away or they were just... I don't know. You could say had the hell driven right out of them, right? Wrecked. I mean, yeah. they were wrecked. They went from being practically pristine and perfect to just about destroyed, probably within a number of years. Well, I've owned a few cars that have, that's been their fate since I've sold them. It's too bad a guy spends all that effort and time on on something like that to see it get wrecked. But after all, it is a car. I guess I watched uh, Herbie the Love Bug and uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang too many times as a kid, you know, mm. because cause you, you, know, you, you start to feel... In a sort of way, like like you have a connection with these things. I know that's completely insane, but you know, like <laughs> you, you know, when you when you when you devote that much time and effort and, and resources to something, you really kind of do begin to fall in love with it. That's why there's been some cars you've had that I've been surprised you got rid of. What was that Cadillac? Well, that Cadillac was an '87 Cadillac Brome. Uh, a lot of people call them Fleetwoods. Uh, but this was called a Brome de Elegance. It was a full-size rear-drive car. Yep. I bought this car from a friend of mine who had bought uh, one of my cars, just like you. I had met him at a car show. I had a beautiful Oldsmobile Regency at the time, a camel-colored four-door 1978 uh, Regency, and he fell in love with that car. And at the time, I was thinking of getting something a little bit different. So just like everybody who's in the old car hobby, storage is always an issue. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to experience a bunch of different cars in your life, you're going to have to part with them from time to time. So that 98, I hated parting with, but I met the right person that day. And he was so fussy and he seemed like such a really nice guy, genuine guy. Uh, Also, I, uh, you know, and all... He gave me what I wanted for the car also. Yeah. So I sold him the car. And when I took it to his house, he lived out in Martinsville. And uh, he's actually, he has become a good friend of mine, just like you. you yeah. Know, in the car hobby. And uh, he had this Cadillac in his garage. And I dropped it off and I said, where do you want me to park it? He said, well, I'm going to be putting it right beside my Cadillac, but I got to go and talk to my wife because she's got to get her car out of the garage. (laughs) So I'm like, well, I don't really want to be around for that conversation. So why don't you wait and show me this Cadillac? And uh, he had it under a cover on jack stands and he pulled the cover up and I could see this gray ghost sitting underneath this cover and I thought god damn that is absolutely gorgeous yeah he only really pulled up a little bit of the cover so that I could see inside and I glanced inside I said jeepers Mose, do you ever drive it he said well once in a blue moon I take it out uh, in the summers uh he bought it from the original owner he was just like us but he doesn't really go to a lot of car shows mm-hmm. or anything so he goes to car shows but he never displays his cars there he just likes to keep them for himself same thing with this Cadillac. I didn't really buy this car to drive it all the time. I just want something to look at while I'm having my coffee in the morning. <laughs> so, so there the car sat. I said, well, if you ever take it out and drive it, I want to see it. And uh, the following summer, he brought it over to my work. Just stopped in for a Friday afternoon visit. He was off work. And I walked around it and I thought, wow, it was just, just a gorgeous car. Yeah. In, in perfect shape. Not a mark on it. Well, you saw it. And the car he bought was uh, an original owner car that was ordered. So it was another one of those cases where the car didn't sit on the lot. It wasn't in the showroom. This car was actually ordered by the guy who, you know, bought it and then owned it for the following 20 or 25 years. Right. And it was ordered in oyster gray was the color. 
and it had matching oyster gray leather interior and it was a brome to elegance with seats that were about three feet thick and they made that sound when you sat in the car that just went they were they were incredible they were so triple overstuffed seats basically oh the yeah softest leather ever yeah and and this beautiful gray and i it's hard to describe what that gray is like it's even the outside but both the inside and the outside yep. it's the kind of gray or sort of silver silver gray that you would picture on a rolls royce it was just like that it had uh it had metallic in it but very little metallic yeah. it seemed like um it was a very unique color. Like and not... then and then the vinyl top was gray as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and then every piece of trim and piece of chrome, like that yeah. was again a car that I don't know if there was a flaw on it anywhere. No, there wasn't. And you know, Cadillac in the eighties, of course, those cars were so ornamented. There was a yeah. little Cadillac crest everywhere you turned, there was a little Cadillac crest on it. Yep. You know, they were at the at the on the sides of the seats, I remember. And in the steering wheel and on every door had a very ornate crest with the with the logo and the crest in it. It was all chrome and it was very they were very, very well made. And that car was extremely well put together also. I never had a problem with that car. That car had do I remember this correctly, that had the, the power closing trunk. Yes. Yeah. Right? Now some people remember those on like say uh, Camaros. They did those on Camaros yep. for, in the eighties too. But basically you set the trunk lid down and it sort of clasps onto it and pulls it down tight. There's a little motor that so, sucks it down. It's called the soft close. Yeah. It, was, it was an option, but it was standard on a Fleetwood De Elegance, which okay. that car was. Right. Yeah. And I bought it. So my dad saw that car once uh, when when my friend was driving it. And he said, wow. He said, man, if you ever had a chance to own that, oh my God, I absolutely love that thing. I would just, man, tell him if he ever wants to sell it, that I'll buy it. Yeah. And... Uh, a Christmas was coming up fairly soon, and I just, in idle conversation, I mentioned to him, I said, you know, if you ever want to sell that car, let me know. Because, uh, you know, my, you know, dad would love that car, yeah. and I would love to, and I had gotten to know him by then. And uh, he said, well, funny you should mention that, because, you know, my daughter's a teenager now, and she's getting, you know, we've gotten her into the horses, and uh, he asked me if I had any idea how much it costs to keep a horse, or how much time it consumes. <laughs> he said, I'm not driving my Cadillac anymore, and... Uh, you know, it costs a fortune to keep boarding horses and stuff. He said, so I'll, uh, I'll sell it to you for what I've got into it. And I said, well, okay. So I bought that car in uh, about the early November, just before we had our first snow, and I hid it in my garage. And that Christmas, Christmas Eve, it was bitterly cold that year. I think this, we're going back to 2016-ish. Yep, yep. And uh, I drove it over to mom and dad's house and backed it into dad's driveway on Christmas Eve. And he was out <laughs> walking, of all things, in the bitter cold. He was out getting his exercise. And, of course, he comes home and that Cadillac was sitting in the driveway. And uh, I met him out there with a rum and coke and I said, Merry Christmas. He said, what, where did you, what, what, huh, what? <laughs> so I gave him the car for Christmas. And we kept that car for about three years. Yeah. You know, that was a beautiful car also. That was that one was probably the most spectacular, I think, just in terms of the shape of the ones that I've seen. You know, I've yeah. only, I have not haven't known you for your whole life, and I'm sure they've all been amazing. But you know, that's that's really cool. That was of all the Cadillacs I've owned. I haven't really owned a lot of Cadillacs, but that was probably the best one. So I've had a couple of duds, 
Um, uh, Cadillacs are notoriously complicated to fix. It's like the Lincoln you were telling me about that uh, with the wiring. Yes. And the butt connectors. It's uh, yeah, they're they're tough to kind of troubleshoot those little problems. But this car didn't have any problems. Nothing. Every the auto level worked. The powered soft closed trunk worked. Yeah. Yeah. The it only was... thing I rebuilt on that car was the air conditioning. The air conditioning was original. The old R12 system was uh, done. It was empty. And uh, so I replaced everything. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, what's funny, I think, and, and you know, maybe you, you remember this more than I do, just because you were there a bit more than I was. But, you know, that car in 1987 was very mm, regal. You know, it was very luxurious, but sort of the very tail end of what, what was called luxurious in North America. Oh, it's, for sure. It's funny to compare vehicles that we're coming out at the same time. Because now I find that, and everybody will say this, but you know, if you look at cars in 2021, everything kind of looks the same. Mm-hmm. There's very much that sort of mentality. It's all SUVs and you can buy a Toyota, a Honda, you can buy a Mercedes and you can go in the interiors and there are differences, but you can get leather in both. You can get, you know, there's, there's a lot of comparables. They're all black. They're all black. Yeah. yeah, you can't get a color in, in an interior anymore, just about. But what I was going to say is that 87 uh, Cadillac, you know, kind of very square edges to it, very formal in, in its styling. And yet you can compare other things in 1987, even offered by General Motors, that were super aerodynamic and sleek. Mm-hmm. You know, had... Um, Air, aircraft style doors that closed not with these formal drip trim that you know was on that Cadillac it's kind of funny how different things were in the same time period just as as cars were transitioning kind of from the style they had been from mm-hmm. the 60s 70s and 80s to what then became what I would call sort of the like mid 80s all the way through the 2000s you know, sort of the jelly bean aerodynamics really, really came into play that really started to change things. Well, yeah, and, you're and right. the cat, cat, that Cadillac, that '87, was like sort of the last sort of battle axe, you could sort of say. Exactly, Cadillac and Lincoln even had a little rivalry. I was 20 years old in 1987, and I remember those cars when they were new. Uh, I can also remember the advertising campaigns. The Cadillac was just slightly bigger than a Lincoln and they used to they used to advertise the cars as the largest uh, the largest American luxury car on sale you know because it was just a little bit bigger than the Lincoln Town car and uh, I owned a 1986 Lincoln Town car way back in the 90s and uh, it was a nice car also but really underpowered the little 302 engine just didn't have enough yeah uh, for an 86 Town car um, the Cadillac was gutless also but at least it had enough power to get out of its own way you know, still had a V8 in it. Yep. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, they, you got to remember too, they were appealing like with those, like an 87, I'm trying to think of a, a newer, smaller aerodynamic car from 87, like the Ford Taurus. Well, the Taurus came out. That was one of the revolutionary ones from Ford. But oh, yeah. think of like, you know, uh, even GM had the Berletta uh, mm-hmm. or they had the Corsica that sort of came out in that era. Mm-hmm. They really started to make things aerodynamically shaped in that way. They changed, you know, door mirrors went from being sort of stuck onto the sides to being blended in, things like that. Right. That really yeah. changed the shape Uh, door handles that were pushed into the sides of the car rather than stick out of the side of the car. All those things, they started to change. But it's kind of funny that in the same year, you had such a difference in those things. Whereas now, 
take any car that's new in 2020 or 2021, they're all pretty aerodynamic. They're all forced to be by, you know, direction of fuel economy numbers. Yep. You know, they meet pedestrian safety standards. Yep, right. So you can't have sharp edges. Like look at, you look at the car that you got in the garage or my classic car. I mean, you could, you could, t- you could dismember somebody with some of the edges that are on those vehicles. Oh, absolutely. You could, you'd you could, slice yeah. through people, right? Like yep. that's reality of, and now, I mean, nobody wants to get hit by a car, but they've changed the shape of them and there's re- rules, right? So it was kind of funny how those rules were all just sort of starting, but you still had square, square, square formal cars. And then you had these sleek things that were at the same time. Well, you did. Uh, but you got to remember that manufacturers are building cars to appeal to certain certain people, especially certain demographics. Yeah. So you have your, your average car buyer in their 20s and 30s buying the, you know, the modern swoopy cars. In 1987... Uh, the German cars were really getting popular, especially yeah. with uh, that whole uh, yuppie kind of culture that was coming <laughs> up. You know, the big business professionals, the era of junk bonds and Wall Street and making huge amounts of money. Um, if you've ever seen the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, yep. well, all of that actually took place in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, uh, but when you... When you look at cars, I mean, cars like that Cadillac Brome were marketed towards people who were later 60s, retired, wanted a big, comfortable, traditional luxury car. And had money to spend on something like that, too. Right. Uh, they, people were already starting to call luxury cars uh, out, you know, as um, uh, I'm going to say, like the when BMW was starting to get really popular in North America. Yeah, and Mercedes. Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of uh, traditional luxury car buyers didn't see those as luxury cars. I still don't see them as luxury cars. It's a performance sedan. It's not a luxury car. When I look at, uh, when I watch TV shows like Top Gear, I used to love watching Top Gear. I still do. I mean, that's what a great show. Absolutely. But they did some really silly comparisons, you know, comparing an M5 to a 1975 Lincoln or Cadillac or something like that. That's not apples and oranges. It's more like, uh, strawberry shortcake and dog shit. <laughs> be, just because you're not comparing the same things, That's you know. Right. No, you're right though, and and I guess it it comes down to when the when they built those cars and where they're from. I mean, now the world is so global. I'll put it that way. Right. That you know, a sports car from Germany and a sports car in the USA have almost become. Sort of the same the thing. Same car what with a what Cadillac car. builds with their V brand. You know, Cadillac's got the last, for sale right now, Cadillac has the last V8-powered manual transmission sedan for sale. Right. They're yep. not going to make the CTS-V after this year or the ne- or the end of this, this generation. That'll be it. It'll yep. be gone. But what I'm saying is, in the past, comparing that, you know, we were talking about this. The creation of the, the freeways and the interstate system in the USA and certainly in Canada, the, the you know, all the, the highways that became paved. Yeah. It's straight lines. You know, you get in a car, you point it in one direction, and you wake up on the other end, and you're still going in the same direction. Exactly. So the idea was you wanted a big, soft, floating, you know, relaxing car to drive. Yeah, in Europe, I mean, I've been there now, roads are tight, narrow, curvy. Oh, absolutely. It's a phenomenal place to drive, and, and Europeans, that's a general term, but Europeans created cars for their local area, right? They right. created cars. And yeah, when you when you compare the two of them, they are completely different, right? Well, they, they really are. I, I have, uh, I've been to Europe. I've been to England a couple times. Yep. 
American cars are totally impractical in England because yes. the roads are small. They're yeah. narrow and there's mews and other roads and streets. You can't drive a big Cadillac or something like that down those roads. Yeah. But you got to remember when Cadillacs were built in the 1970s, like you were saying, the interstate system was, you know, kind of up and well, and you can drive for hundreds of miles in a, basically a straight line yeah. to get anywhere. They don't have distances like that in, especially in England, you know, and the, the entire country is only about the size of Saskatchewan. And the reversal then is true too. You know, a lot of European cars, when they're imported here, let's say, or they build them for North America, mm -hmm. they oftentimes have bigger, stronger powertrains in them because... A 1.2-liter three-cylinder engine in a Volkswagen Polo just doesn't really have enough, you know, to, yep. to get over, say, the, the Rocky Mountains or to cruise at a comfortable pace uh, or cruise comfortably at 70 miles an hour or 110 kilometers an hour. The poor little three-bangers just screaming away. Oh, for sure. Whereas, you know, you upgrade it with a, a four-cylinder, a little bit bigger engine, gearing's a little different, and it calm the thing down so it can actually do the freeway speeds or highway speeds that... I mean, and, and things have now changed. You know, I mean, that we're talking the past, right? Because mm -hmm. now cars are just getting more and more the same, whether they're from... Europe, they're from Asia, they're from North America, they're they're building them the same way. But interestingly enough, the luxury car has virtually, you know, the thing that you and I kind of like the most, and I like lots of cars. I right. I got a huge soft spot for Honda and for Japanese imports. You know, the, what I what we're, what we've been talking about all all day here is not the only thing I like. Right. But that kind of car either you could say it's disappeared or you could say it's just simply morphed into something else. And it's turned in, in maybe we could say it's turned into the big full-size crossover SUV now. Right. You know, and I think of what's the big, big Buick now? Um, uh, the big SUV is yeah, called the Enclave. Enclave, yeah, yeah. That, or, you know, I mean, just take a Cadillac Escalade or or pick an Acura MDX or, you know, some some big full-size vehicle like that. They kind of handle and drive like our old favorite American full-size cars did. Well, they they really do. And I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, what's the best-selling vehicle in North America right now? The F-150. It's the Ford F-150. That's right. So what is a Ford F-150? Well, it's a 20-foot-long vehicle with four doors that seat six with a gigantic trunk and a V8 engine. And a full-size frame, body-on frame. Yeah, right? so you could say that a modern Ford F-150 is a kind of a loose example of a 69 Buick Electra Limited. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Or a 77 Mercury Marquis. You've got seating for six. You've got a huge trunk. You've got V8 power to cruise up and down mountain passes all day long. That's right. And uh, they a modern pickup truck, I drive them all the time at work. They get about 20 miles per gallon. Yep. My Delta 88 from 1983... Uh, gets a six passenger with a huge trunk. It gets about 20 miles per gallon. It's true. So how far have we really come? Because people are buying these big pickup trucks in droves. And well, and, we, we've just traded the, those cars for pickup trucks. That's all we've done. We really have. We really have. And, you know, there's plenty of big SUVs. As you may, you're talking about the pickup truck. But, you know, if we just talk about SUVs too, there's plenty of them. Yes. That really don't handle any better or much better say on a slalom course than a big old car would. 
you know, they're, they've improved and their ride is, their rides are great, but they're, they are the modern equivalent that, that F-150 or that truck or that big SUV kind of is the modern equivalent. It's not a sports car. Yeah. It's, it's not great on fuel necessarily. Right. Right. Yeah. And there are some exceptions to the rule. I mean, I know when you really go expensive and you talk about Audi SUVs, Mercedes Benz, Porsche SUVs. Yeah. You can get SUVs that handle better than sports cars ever did from every bygone era. Right. That's true. But that's not what everybody's buying. Those are, you know, not sold in great, great, great numbers. Right. No, exactly. But the average family vehicle now. Yeah. It's just morphed. It's just sort of changed, right? Well, it's right? become an appliance and the modern family almost uh, demands it as uh, people feel more and more entitled to stuff. It just happens to be the, the a part of your life yeah. is, is that family car. And it's more a utilitarian thing, like your refrigerator in your kitchen. Nobody cares what it looks like as long as it works. See, right? and this brings us all back to the thing that I started talking about at the beginning is are we going to see anybody who took special care of their refrigerator? Well, <laughs> in 20 years, right? That's yeah. the big question is if, if, if a lot of people see them that way and I can see that, you know, you've got a grand caravan, you f- fill it full of four kids. It does a whole lot of work and it's, you know, a, a good, reliable vehicle and, yeah. and it gets used, it gets used up. They get used up because, because that's what they're designed to do is carry a bunch of family, a bunch of stuff, go on road trips, you know, go to soccer games. Well, they do their job. In a lot of ways, I think they are. I think you're going to find in 20 years, cars of today, you're going to find the odd one yeah. that was kept, it was put away, whatever the story is, because every car has got its own little story, including the one that is going to get bought tomorrow. And uh, it's funny, you'll go to a car show and every so often, even nowadays, you'll see a car that, I mean, to me, they were throwaway cars. Yeah. And I'm thinking of examples of the Chevy Malibu, those ones from the 80s, the four-door ones. Uh, or a Chevy the, Vega. Just the before. Chevy Chevette. Yeah. If a mint condition Chevy Chevette shows up at a car show, I'm going to go and look at it. Yep. You know why? Because I remember those cars fondly from when they were new. Pintos, Pacers. Yep. Uh, Gremlins, Javelins, yep. AMC Eagles. Uh, you know, like all that stuff that sort Vegas, of you know, disintegrated. The, the list goes on and on and on the, mm-hmm. of the cars that just never made it. They were simply driven to the ground because they weren't worth anything when they were 10 years old. That's right. And, but now you do still find the odd one yeah. that was that story you're talking about. One, you know, maybe older person, lady, man, kept it. Oh, sure. Stored it away daily, you know, just drove it on Sundays, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because I, uh, just like you said, I'm actually a little more attracted at a car show to go see that yeah. than I am to see another 68 Camaro or another 65 Ford Mustang, you know? Right, yeah. Those are beautiful cars, don't get me wrong. And if you're into Camaros and Mustangs, good for you. And for I think sure. they're fantastic. They're just so popular. They are, yeah. they are. And and there is a, I, even being a Buick owner, I have a bit of envy of those Mustang and Camaro guys mm. because when something breaks, they can go online and buy just about any part that they want. Exactly. You know, there's, there's repops of everything. Uh, Buick world. It's, it's sort of half there. You can buy some stuff, other stuff you got to scrounge for. Yeah. But then things like, um, if you have a Chevette or a Vega, where do you get parts for that? Well, you know? Yeah. It, almost impossible. Like you're not going to go and find a, I, I, it depends on the car. Of course, a lot of those Chevettes, it came with those little iron Duke four-cylinder engines and you can get a lot of the basic parts but you know what like a rear bumper 
or body parts for a Chevette that haven't been either smashed or rusted out, you know, that would be really, really tough to it find. It would, it would. So that's why they're so unique and they're very unique to look at, uh, you know, at a car show. Lots of the, the early ones had that ugly plaid interior. And <laughs> which, is, which isn't ugly anymore. It's totally cool now, now. It's just so retro. You look at it, it's like, oh God, it's so hideous. It's cool. It's so, it's, uh, right. It's, it's so ugly that it's cool now. You know, yeah. it's, it totally is. I, I have a theory with this too, is that, you know, the people who owned... Cadillacs, Buicks, Lincolns, Chryslers, all that expensive stuff. Yeah. They were the ones who could do what we've talked about this whole show is basically buy a car, drive it a little bit, dote on it, keep it. Chevettes and Ford Pintos and Escorts and those things, they, the people who bought them didn't have the money, generally didn't have the means to do that. Yeah. Right. And they weren't in, they weren't buying a car to keep it anyways it was simply an appliance used up onto the next thing right right so then when you do find one now it's just such a, a even more rare occurrence right right yeah it, it that's i think it's just part of of what the vehicle was when it was new you know exactly just like there's a ton of vehicles now that uh, i think of a chevy cobalt you know that perfect example a cavalier my wife had a cavalier when we were dating yeah and now and it was a 95 two-door cavalier the first gen first of the new body style that was really really aerodynamic kind of had uh the turn singles were sort of triangle shaped you know yeah really sleek looking thing two-door coupe and you know what it's 15 20 years later since she had it in high school we we actually like we see one on the road. We point one out, right? Because they used to be everywhere, and now they've disintegrated and they're gone. And they're gone. And yeah. so you when you see one, you're like, wow, look that sweetie. There's there's a, a cavalier just like the one you used to have. But that happens once a year now, right? You know, yeah. not every third stoplight like it was ten or twenty years ago. Oh, for sure. So, but Mustangs from fifteen twenty years ago. There's lots of them around. Well, lots because, of people kept their Mustang. And yeah. They, they just liked those Mustangs. And that was kind of that first kind of classic collectible cars or Mustangs and Camaros. And the value went up. So people started hoarding. You're not hoarding them, but people started keeping them and looking after them. Yeah, that's right. They didn't do that so much with the uh, family station wagon, for example. But it's really interesting. You know, I've been out to Okotoks a number of years uh, for their annual collector car auction. Yeah. And about three years ago... Pre-pandemic, of course, I was out at Okotoks, and the more the most expensive car I saw sell there was a station wagon. <laughs> it was a 1969 Chevrolet, full side a Kings Kingswood station wagon. Yep, yellow. It had the uh, wood planking down the sides, and it sold for thirty grand. Wow! And I thought that was such a huge number, and half of the Mustangs out there never came close to that number for selling. So. I think, you know, you you seek what you cannot get. Basically, you can't buy a station wagon anymore, it right? It defines uh, economics, simple economics, yeah. supply and demand. There are no station wagons to buy new, and there haven't been for a number of years now. No. Like, station wagons have pretty much ultimately disappeared. Although, I would still call most of the SUVs we drive a station wagon on stilts. It's basically the same They're thing. They're basically wagons, yeah. But, nonetheless... Station wagons are making a huge comeback. Mm-hmm. Like they are, like you said, that auction worth a lot. And yep. there's there's now clubs dedicated to them and there are people looking for them specifically. And they are, like you said, they were so utilitarian for a, 
a lot of their existence. Right. That, you know, say somebody, and, and I'll give you an example. I read an article in a magazine recently where uh, this uh, 58 Buick Limited Caballero wagon, and I mean, it's worth a fortune. Right. Because a lot of guys bought, you know, Buick, 58 Buick uh, Limited convertibles. Right. And that was, a, you know, yeah, that's an awesome car to keep. A station wagon? Yeah. Nah. Yeah. Right? But it was a luxury station wagon in 1958. Of and course now it to was. find one of those, yeah. that is impossible. It's a unicorn. There's yes. uh, the latest edition of Hemmings has got a 58, yep. the restoration of this 58 uh, Buick Caballero estate wagon. Yep, that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's, uh, well, they're such unique cars and they're so unique to look at. Uh, also, and the fact of the matter is that most of them are all used up in demolition derbies or simply driven straight into the ground. <laughs> and, uh, they're, and yeah, they are basically all gone. Uh, they're, you know, if you ever see a wagon in a demolition derby, chances are it was far beyond restoration because anyone destroying one now in a demolition derby has got to have rocks in their head because they're selling it for 20 <laughs> or 30 grand at auction. That's right. Know? So <laughs> I got to say the coolest wagons, you know, before we wrap the show up, the coolest wagons. Uh, have got to be from from GM and the clamshell the wagons. Clamshell wagons, those were awesome. Oh, man, yeah. you know I I haven't seen many of them in person. I've watched some videos and stuff. I did see one at a car show, uh, probably three four years back. You know, pre COVID and all that sort sort of thing. But just Google clamshell wagon. You basically stuck a key into the the key slot on the one side of the back of the vehicle. And the what the glass disappeared into the into it, the tailgate. The glass disappeared actually up into the roof. Oh, did it? Yeah, the glass went into the roof, and the gate went down underneath the floor. It's so cool. So that it just opened and closed like like a yeah, clam, like a clam, like just like a clamshell. Very cool. Friends of mine, when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, they had one, and uh, my friends and I, I can remember getting into the back of that car because as little kids, you went to the back, you rode in the back of the station yep, wagon. Yeah, that's right. And it had a flip up. It was an Oldsmobile Custom Cruiser. And I'm going to say it was from 74, 75, 76. Yep. Uh, like that. It was a clamshell wagon, dark green with the wood paneling down the side <laughs> of it. Funny, I can remember every detail about that. I know. And yet I can't find my keys. <laughs> I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I know. But that, uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Williams would go out there with a the key and turn that thing. And you'd have to, as kids, you'd have to wait to get in the car. Because you had to wait for that whole mechanism to open up before you could get in. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and parents back then, of course, were all, my dad and all of those person of his generation were all fussy with the cars. That's just how I grew up anyway. Yeah. As kids, are your shoes clean? You you were asked if your shoes were clean all the time and no eating in the car. We got in there, we sat there and we behaved ourselves. So, <laughs> but you know what? That glass would stay up on a hot day. And I can remember ball caps and a baseball glove once went out the back window. <laughs> never to be found again. Never to be found again. Somebody in the front would put the window down to smoke a cigarette, for example. <laughs> and as soon as that flow of air came straight to the back and that back window was gone, you had a whoosh of air. And, yep. and everything flew out the back if you didn't have it on tight. It was gone. So I, I grew up in a station wagon too, a much newer station wagon, mm -hmm. but a pair of them. Uh, my parents had an 89 Ford Taurus station wagon, okay. the aerodynamic one. And then we had a 99 Ford Taurus station wagon, which was the jelly, the really jelly bean kind. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this, it was actually the second one, the 99 that had a third row of seating rear facing out the back. And that was, that was a lot of fun. You know, it, it really was. And I actually kind of got that car after I moved out, uh, out of the house and things like that. And it was yeah. sort of mine for a few years. 
or a good number of years. And you know what? I, I, I like station wagons. I do. I got to admit, my yeah. wife hates them. That's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. But I love, I like station wagons. I would love to restore a station wagon. You know, we do a lot of vinyl wrap work uh, in my business. Yeah. And you can get, I've seen examples of vinyl wrap where you can get the wood grain vinyl wrap. Oh my gosh. You can get it in any kind of flavor, like fur, light fur, dark mahogany, anything yep. you can think of. And it's a vinyl wrap. Way back in the day, that stuff was so hard to apply. And uh, it on these older station wagons, it always cracks. It's like made on a Mac tack or something, whatever they call it <laughs> yeah. back in the day. But you can even get neat designs, you know, with smoke or whatever, skulls. And it looks like wood grain. Yeah, that's right. Know? Yeah. Very, very cool. And it, I, I think it would be a great uh, idea. And I know people are out there that have station wagons that I've seen the odd one for sale on Kijiji. They totally look restorable, and I would encourage anyone to restore a station wagon. No kidding. Yeah. yeah, they are. They are definitely getting popularity. It's it's wanting what you can't find or can't easily have, you know. And then that that adds even more to the allure yeah. of it all. Exactly. A little, a little bit. And of in that. twenty years, people say you should find and restore that Plymouth Voyager minivan that had the wood planking down the side of it. As crazy as that sounds. Well, yeah, you're probably not wrong. Yeah. Because I remember riding around as those as in those as a kid. Yeah. You know, and now to see one, they just aren't they're, out there. They're just not out there. And that's why they get attention. People want to see what they look like. The original minivans, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, Tim, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, thanks for your, your top five, you know, cars that you've had and all the history and, and, and all that. And I'm sure we'll get you on again because you've got oh, sure. more stories than we've, that we've got time for. So. I always love talking about cars with you, Jay. It always turns into a great conversation. It really does. It really does. So so thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for listening to us right now, by the way. We really appreciate all your time. Uh, fo- follow me in all kinds of places. You can find Jay Thomas Auto on Facebook as well as Instagram jthomasauto.ca and subscribe to this podcast Bald Tires uh, for lots more great stories like this to come thanks for listening to the Bald Tires podcast I'm Jay Thomas